Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shoman Katoshu Daiju Soku Oryu Sankan Entangling Vines Case 10 Oryu's Three Barriers Oryu Enan asked Ryuke Keikan Everyone has a native place. What is your native place? Ryuke answered, Early this morning I had some rice gruel, and now I feel hungry again. How is my hand like the Buddha's hand? Oryu asked. I play a lute in the moonlight. Ryuke answered, How does my leg resemble the leg of a donkey? He asked. Ryuke answered, A snowy egret stands in the snow. Their colors are not the same. Oryu always presented students with these three statements but no one could give a satisfactory response. Monks everywhere called them the three barriers of Oryu. Even with the few who gave answers, the master would neither agree nor disagree, but only sit there in formal posture with eyes closed. No one could fathom his intent. When asked the reason for this, Oryu replied, Those who have passed through the gate shake their sleeves and go straight on their way. What do they care if there's a gatekeeper? Those who ask the gatekeeper's approval have yet to pass through. The pleasant noises of the rain. Bring freshness on this fifth day of our Hoan session. We've seen sunshine, we have seen snow. We have seen very little in the fog. And now it rains. I suppose the state of your mind have experienced some similar things. The changing of the weather. And it probably rings true in Zen practice and life as well as it rings. One of the things that my father taught me was there is no bad, bad weather. There is only inappropriate outfit. So if you find your 
selves in your life standing there in shorts and it is freezing cold, don't complain about your life. <laughs> it's the outfit. So that's why we are here. Part of the reason to get in tune with what it is that is needed in the moment. This is such a... I, I'm looking, I feel like I'm looking at all people who have won the great karmic lottery because you are here. You are already winners. First, you are winners because you are of humankind that gave you enough trouble to bring you here, as we heard from Shingiroshi. And then to encounter the Dharma, or I say Dharma, we say Dharma, but anything that helps human beings develop is wonderful. So for us, it happens to be what we call the Dharma. But there are so, so many different ways. Take it as a lesson, seeing our friends and our brothers, brother monks from Japan. They follow the same practice that we follow, or so do we think, so do they think. But we do things completely different. Different places, different ways of chanting, different ways of doing this and that. But don't ever forget, under all these robes here, you go down layer by layer, you'll arrive at the skin. And under the skin with bones and flesh, we find other human beings. So as many differences as there may be, they don't matter when it comes to the core of this practice. So today, uh, it is case number 10 of this koan collection that's called Shumon Katoshu, Entangling vines. If you have been here for some time, you have heard the first nine cases. And there are over 200 to go. And it is a little different, this collection, than the big collections like Mumonkan or the Hekigan Roku or even the Iron Flute. Have you noticed the difference? I see some heads moving slightly. No commentary. There is no commentary here. This is like essential koans. You might sometimes get lost when Roshi reads to you in three or four or five different voices the original, the comment, the comment to the commentary, the, the criticism to the comment to the commentary. <laughs> And then a footnote by Nyogen Senzaki. <laughs> this is much more straightforward, but so it is a different 
way of presenting the koans. It's more like a catch-all. Because when you look at those over 200 koans, you find them in those other collections as well. In the Blue Cliff Record, the Hekigan Roku. You find them in the Gateless Barrier, the Mumon Khan. The even, there are many other collections. We don't have to go through all of them. So this case number 10 is interesting. How many cases are there in the Mumon Khan? Forty-eight. This koan sometimes is referred to as case number 49. And that's interesting. There are 48 cases. So this is case number 49, which seems superfluous, but it is not. The funny thing about it is how it was introduced into the Mumon Khan was not as a case, but Mumon Eke. Zenzu Dai Osho, was, he was invited by another monk by the name of Muryo Soju, who lived at the same time. Oh, Mumon, why don't you come to my place and talk about the gateless gate that you wrote about, that you commented on? And Mumon did actually accept, and he lectured there. So, in the end of the Mumon Khan, after Mumon's closing words, is a contribution of Muryo Soju, who is giving three poems. Three poems responding to the three questions that we encounter in this koan. So it's a wonderful case because it's no case. We just have the answers in a poetic form from this monk, Muryo Soju. Very little is known about him besides these poems that he contributed to the Mumon Khan about Oryu's three barriers. The case is also interesting because there are the three questions that are in here. But actually what is presented is Master Oryu asking one of his disciples those questions. So we hear the questions and we hear sample responses. And once those sample responses are over, it says right there, that Oryu always presented his students with these three statements. But nobody could give a satisfactory response. So who is this person, Oryu? Have you heard the name before? Some might have heard the name Oryu. He lived in the Song Dynasty in China. In the Shumon Katoshu, there are five cases that speak about Oryu Enan. Five out of 200 is an okay number. 
So he is not one like Joshu or Umon, who have many, many cases all throughout the various koan collections. But five is a good number. You know, when Yamakawa Roshi introduced one of the cases from Mumonkan, he talked a little bit about the lineage and how Rinzai Zen came to Japan, who the first person was to formally transmit Zen, and that that person actually found the temple that is in Wakayama Prefecture, where uh, Yamakawa Roshi spent quite some time. It sounds a little academic if you think about it, but it's, it's not at all. From the point of view of somebody engaged deeply in, in, the, in bringing these lineages forward, this is our family. This is our family. <laughs> they are listening. <laughs> you see, it's alive. And it will only stay alive while we are alive and share it with each other, with all of the world. So this is part of a formal presentation on a koan. It's not a history lesson. You will not be questioned. But maybe there remains some kind of seed that makes Oryo Enan become alive in your imagination, in your recollection, and appear in front of you at some point. Let's see if he asks his questions. What will you say? So Oryo Enan, he lived from 1002 until 1069. He was from the Shaanxi province. He was ordained at the tender age of 11 years. Well, that could mean a lot of things, but mostly it meant many children, many mouths in the family to be fed. Well, you become a monk. Go eat at the monastery. And it wasn't a bad thing, because it was very difficult even then. Either you became a government official and you studied how to do calligraphy, how to read and write. Or you were a monk, then you could learn that as well. Otherwise, well, go about your business, produce stuff, farm, pick up the garbage, empty the pails of shit that are all around town. You don't need to read. Follow your nose. You will find those pails. So becoming a monk was not a bad thing. And he studied under a master in the lineage of the most famous Umon Bunen Zenji. And even in the monastery, he was lucky because that master made him his scribe. 
You saw a wonderful example with Unsan translating what kind of serving in one way position a translator is, but also at the same time what kind of privileged position it is. Because you get to be the conduit of that what is being, in this case, given from one language, from one being through another being into a different language. When we write as a scribe, it's a similar process, but you don't translate it into a different language. You put it in characters, and you put it on paper. And we all heard a wonderful explanation how Chinese characters contain meaning that goes way beyond any literal meaning. We say character, ideogram is a good word for it. It's a picture of something. Oh, I feel the hand. It's pressing me down. Do you remember that? So he was the scribe. And from that somewhat privileged position, he became fairly quickly a successor to this master in the Umon tradition. Has anyone been ever, of you a very gifted child who succeeded very early? <laughs> a gifted child who succeeded early in their lives? If you had, you know it's a difficult thing. In the Zen tradition, if you rise to be somebody's successor fairly quickly, there should be thunder now. <laughs> it's not so easy either. So having become the successor, at some point, of course, Odio Enan ran into somebody who severely criticized his teacher. That person's name was Umpo Monetsu. Your teacher, blah, 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 blah. You probably ran into people like that in your lives too. And that's okay. That's okay. If there is something to it, you can't but listen. And what we acknowledge by that, by the listening, is not that we concur with the other person's assessment of the person who we have studied with. But we concur with the knowledge that there's always more to learn. There are always more jewels in this Indra's net reflecting everything. And if anyone ever claims, I've seen it all, you know it's not true. Orio listened. And Umpo Mon Etsu 
said to him, there is this teacher, Seki So So, and whose name we chant every night in the Teidai Denpo service. He's sometimes referred to also as Jimyo, Jimyo, Seki So So En. All right, maybe there's something more for me to learn. Let me find Seki So So En's place. He set out on what we call Angya, Angya, pilgrimage to refine himself. And as it happens, on the way to Sekisosuan's place, he stayed over in another monastery that, for some reason, urgently needed a scribe, a secretary. And here comes somebody who had done that job who is a successor to one of the Umon Dharma heirs. And a good job sometimes stops people in their tracks. And exactly the same thing happened to Odio. He decided to take the position as the secretary of the monastery. I don't know, maybe there's some subcontext here. Something said, maybe I'm not ready to go and, and actually continue my studies. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Wine sometimes has to rest too. And cheese, so that it grows over time. And sometimes we don't even have to be proactively the ones who seem to initiate the whole action that is going on here. The Dharma and the universe will take off care of itself. So being the secretary at this place, the priest died. The officials looked for a successor. Who did they ask to come? Jimyo. So Jimyo Sekisosoen came and took over that monastery. Now here is uh, Oryo sitting, being confronted by the universe with the person he was supposed to study with. And we as human beings, we usually say, I know better, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like this. So for quite some time, there was no teacher-student relationship here. It was the abbot and the secretary of the monastery. But over time, of course, they got into each other's way and polished each other. And case number 197 in the Shumon Katoshu recounts how it came to be that Jimyo asked the secretary about his understanding. He said, well, if the secretary has studied Umon's Zen, surely he understands it. Tell me, 
when Tozan was spared three score blows of Umon's staff. Could he have been struck or should he not have been struck? He, he should not have been struck, answered Odio. Jimyo, his face stern, said, If after hearing that Ummon spared Tozan's three score blows, you feel that he should have been struck, then you should be struck from dawn to dusk, whether hearing the caw of a crow, the cry of a magpie, or the sounds of the bells, the wooden fish and the gong. When would you ever stop getting the stick? Audio, surprised, stepped back. Jimyo said, At first, I thought I could not serve as your teacher. But now I see I can. He allowed Odu to become his disciple. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And that happened in this story, how Oryu became a student of Sekiso Soen. Jimyo gave transmission of his lineage to Oryo. And the Oryo or Oryo, it's an O or U, you can read either way. Lineage is one of the main lineage of Rinzai Zen. And if you remember, Yamakawa Roshi spoke about how Rinzai Zen first came to Japan and who is it? Do you remember? Myo-an Esai, or sometimes it's read Yosai. He brought that audio lineage to Japan. Esai lived from 1141 until 1215, and this is the first formally transmitted Zen lineage in Japan. But this person does not appear in our Tedai Denpo. You know what that means? We are from a different lineage. And that lineage starts at the same time as the Oryo lineage started. Because there was a Dharma brother of Oryo Enan by the name of, now try to think, Sekiso So and 
Come on, come on. <laughs> yogi hoy. It's the yogi lineage. Think of baseball. <laughs> yogi hoy. Yogi hoy. started the second lineage that then continued through time with all the names that we chant and came the last ancestor who we have in China is before the third bell, Kido Chigu. And then we have the Daio Kokushi that, uh, who we heard about. Kido Chigo uh, went, had, had uh, the student from Japan come in 1265, he gave trans transmission to Nampo Jomyo, and our lineage came to Japan in 1267. Yogi Hoi's lineage. Now, there's another interesting thing here, because just uh, maybe two cases or three cases back, we had a different discussion of three barriers that also interestingly happened to be just two cases back in the Mumonkan. Tōsotsu's three barriers. And the interesting thing is that Tōsotsu's teacher was Hōbō Kokumon, who was a successor to Geshom. Oryo Enan. So they are also related. Hobo Kokumon and then Tosotsu Ju Etsu. Now you could see from here, from the Koan when we read it, what did Oryo do when somebody gave answers? Well, you impersonated very well. <laughs> but your eyes were open. Oh, so he, he sat in formal posture. He didn't say anything. And some people tried. And we heard a couple of these answers here. This Ryukei Keikan gave some of the answers. He is one of his later successors. But let's, let's look at those questions that we have here. It's translated, this is the translation I'm using, is from uh, Yuho Thomas Kirshner, who is a New Jersey-born American who went to Japan, and uh, who Roshi and I and a couple of other people had dinner with two years ago in Kyoto. And he translated uh, the Shumon Katoshu into English. It's very helpful to have it. And here's how he translates it, the question. What did I say? <laughs> Everyone has a native place. What is your native place? Other translation in this context, look at the characters that are sometimes used also for karma. Everybody comes into the world under certain karmic conditions. And just yesterday, Roshi talked about that. 
in the context of the Buddha being born from an armpit. Everyone has a native place. What is your native place? You give an answer and nothing is said. So people get very curious if, people, if somebody does something like that. And eventually somebody will come and ask, why are you doing this? Explain yourself. Explain yourself. And here's what Audio Enan said. Now listen up, Mr. Trump. <laughs> A guilty conscience needs no judge. cannot be said in any other way. When Yamakawa Roshi talked about the priests going into town and doing things like gambling and drinking, we should not take that as a superficial statement. In the same way that he encouraged us to not take our practice in any kind of superficiality. You want to do it with the same intensity that this rain is doing what it is doing. It cannot be helped. The rain doesn't intend to do anything. It just rains. So if you go in town, do it like the rain. and wash everything 
and nourish everything that is so imploringly thirsty amidst all this water. I don't think that he spoke against drinking in general, because when I took his party to New York City, uh, we helped diminish uh, the availability of certain liquid intoxicants. So we took it upon ourselves to destroy them so they would not interfere with anybody else's <laughs> state of mind. So the bodhisattva spirit came through here, I suppose. But now, without speaking about it lightly, the intoxication that he was talking about is the biggest intoxicant that there is, for which, I don't know if you knew that, but you are all here in rehab. We are all here rehabilitating ourselves from that intoxication of what? Thinking. Thinking. What about ego? Huh? Thinking is okay sometimes. Egotistic thinking usually, ooh. <laughs> but ego is the biggest intoxicant biggest intoxicant and you know how sweet it can feel as long as you affirm it. When you stop affirming it, the bile comes out. The pain begins and the ego starts screaming, no, 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 I am the most important thing. You have to move that leg. If you don't move that leg, you'll die. Or the pain will be unbearable even more than it is. Here. <laughs> it's quite something to learn to listen to. It's not easy to not get swept away by it. So don't think you're weak. Just hearing it is the first step. Sometimes people come to the Zendo who are in recovery for substance abuse. And sometimes they introduce themselves and say, Hi, I'm Peter. I'm an alcoholic. And so I bow to them and says, hi, I am Tokuro. I'm an egotist. <laughs> and Peter says, oh, well, I'm not. So I bow to him again and says, well, so you're an alcoholic and a liar. <laughs> <laughs> we all are egotists. We, we, need, we need to be at times, but we need to learn where it belongs and where it does not belong. That is really, really important. We all could be crazy, called crazy. And, well, there's something unique about it. But it can't be 
that what rules everything we do. You know, intoxication comes with what afterwards? That sounded so authoritative. <laughs> it's, yeah, hangover. Hangover, terrible headaches. And, and from, what, what, is, what is the cosmic hangover called? Karmic conditions yeah, that are changed, that come into existence. And then somebody comes and asks us about it. Everyone has a native place. What is your native place? What are the karmic conditions you came forth from? And that in itself, the question answered by Yuke gives you one way of thinking and looking at it. Yuke said, early this morning I had some rice gruel. And now I feel hungry again. Early this morning we had some quinoa and other stuff, rice gruel. <laughs> Has anyone become hungry again? Yeah, that's one way of answering it. Another way to answer is to just look at oneself and see that in this moment, where we are sitting here together in front of the images of the Buddha looking at us, Edoroshi, teachers, Innen teachers, wise people on the right hand side of the Putsudan, images of practitioners on the left side. Even acknowledging, I don't know if you ever noticed that, if you look at the ehais, the little uh, plaques that we, every morning with the Enmei Juku Kanongyo, when the bell is rung, all of them are called into our hearts and minds in presence. And you might think, oh yeah, how many, well, how many things are up there? What would you say? Forty altogether? No. There's one ihai that says on it, Tero. Tero. 9-11. All the victims of the 9-11 attack have an ihai on our Putsudan. Every morning, everybody. This is quite something. And here we are, having arrived at Daibosatsu Zendo with the offer, very gracious offer, of borrowing the monastery wheelbarrow to cart away all the things that are those karmic conditions of which we can let go. And that's important to know, of which we can let go. It's not all up to us. So, 
I told you about those poems that we find in case number 49. And after I drink a little more tea, I will read them to you. Before the poems, I want to just quickly visit the other two questions and answers that we got from Ryuke, because it's, they are they're wonderful examples of, of answers that were not judged. They were not judged. He didn't say anything. He just sat there. How often do you take it as disapproval if somebody doesn't say anything? We generally do, don't we? You know what that means for us? Don't do that to others. Say something. Oh, wonderful. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> Already that is so much lighter than not saying anything. There are words in this world. Use them for good ways, for not fixating, for not letting others make assumptions, intents. How often do we even know what our own intent is in doing something? And then we start projecting it onto other people. And you know what happens when we do that? Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. What happens? Suffering. Yeah, that will happen anyway. <laughs> but, but what do we look for? What is the worst thing I myself can think on about in myself? And then I start projecting it onto the other person. Because that's what I would have done. And we don't get to the point to actually see, well, use that self-discovery to look at yourself and not to judge others. It's always something when judgment is such a great opportunity for us to see through the workings of our heart-mind. Take your judgments very much in stride and be open about it to yourself. And most of all, learn for yourself that at this moment it might be true or the appropriate thing, but that moment is over. The universe doesn't fall, follow the law of precedence. Oh, this is how it was before. <laughs> Look fresh at every situation. So even though Oryu didn't say anything, 
to Ryuke's answer for the first question. The early this morning I had some rice gruel and now I feel hungry again. He continued with his second question. How is my hand like the Buddha's hand? The hand. I play a lute in the moonlight. Lute playing is wonderful on a lake with the moon in China, in one of those wonderful paintings that you have later in the Tang Dynasty. The music that comes from the lute, it's a nice expression of a non-verbal expression of the beauty of what the rain just told us. Now the next question, uh, how does my leg resemble the leg of a, of a donkey? I don't know if audio had hoofs. Probably not, or maybe it was very hairy. He didn't shave his legs. Ryukei answered, a snowy egret stands in the snow. Their colors are not the same. What do you think that could mean? It's actually used in the Zen terminology quite a lot. The snowy egret standing in the snow and their color not being the same. Even the slightest bit of differentiation. Even the slightest bit. But here comes case 49. How is my hand like the Buddha's hand? Feeling the pillow at the back of my head, I gave spontaneously a loud laugh to find my entire body all Buddha's hand. The pillow story actually goes back to another story, talking about Ungan, who was Tozan's teacher. And Ungan asked his Dharma brother, Dogo, and, and look at the picture here on the wall, because what does the great Bodhisattva of mercy, Avalokiteshvara, Kanzeon, Make with all those hands and eyes of hers. Dogo said, It is just like feeling for one's pillow at the back of one's head at dead of night. Ungan said, Her entire body is hand and eye. So are we. 
the hands and eyes of the great Kanze on Bosatsu. We just had, have to allow our actions to let that come through. The entire body is hand and eye. How is your hand like the Buddha's hand? When you put your hands in gaso, when you catch your fellow practitioner just about to stumble and fall down, picking up your eating bowl with the rice gruel, and even grasping your pillow when you lie down to retire. The second question. How does my leg resemble the leg of a donkey? Murio Soju said, before even stepping out, already it has moved on. Stalking freely all over the four seas, facing backward, astride yogi's three-legged beast. So we have to unpack this a little bit. The stepping out, but even before stepping out, already it has moved on. It's like when you sit on a donkey and there is no donkey, there's no rider. There's just one body that is moving, even before you think about it. Donkeys are not known to be particularly cooperative. Maybe the donkey's name is uh, Ego. Ego. <laughs> right? The donkey moves before even a thought flashes. And yogi's beast, it is this yogi we talked about. Yogi Hoe. Yogi's beast. What is yogi's beast? Yogi Hoe, also Jimmy's successor, was asked by a monk, What is Buddha? He answered, A three-legged donkey goes moving its hooves. And what he meant, the three legs of the donkey are the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya, the three Buddha bodies. We recited yesterday about the Dharmakaya in the ambrosial nectar verse. Hoshin, the Dharmakaya. And why riding backwards? First, you sit on a donkey. And you don't even look where it goes. 
Does it sound somewhat familiar, that writing backwards phrase? Have you heard that anywhere before? Maybe not with a donkey. In case 86 of the Blue Cliff record, and it happens to be Umon who speaks there about everybody has their own light. There's the poem by Secho, and Secho says in his poem, it illuminates itself, absolutely bright. He gives a clue to the secret. Flowers have fallen. We heard about that yesterday. Trees give no shade. Who does not see if they look? Seeing is no seeing. No seeing is seeing. Facing backwards on the ox. One rides into the Buddha hall. Facing backwards, riding the three bodies of the Buddha. That's how our legs resemble the leg of a donkey. Here's the last question, which actually is the first question in the case, but in the Mumon Khan, it happens to be the last. Everyone has a native place. Where is your native place? Each expresses her original nature before her thoughts arise. Prince Nada broke his own bones and gave them back to his father. Did the fifth ancestor have a father? These are the karmic connections. Prince Nada's story about taking a bone out of his body and returning it to his father and cutting some, fla some, some flesh of his body and returning it to his mother. And then after that, further going forward with practicing to redeem them. Karmic conditions. Sometimes we think that the, the Pali Kanon and the Theravada Buddhist understanding of karma is different than the understanding of karma that we hear in the Zen tradition, but it really is not. Even in such uh, places as the, uh, the fourth of, of the Nikayas, which is called uh, Anguttara Nikaya, there is writing about karma. So in the Anguttara Nikaya, supposedly Shakyamuni himself said, Intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one does karma by way of body, speech, and thought. All the harmful karma.
ever committed by me, sins of old. This could not be any closer. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Or he says, all beings are owners of their own actions, their own karma, heirs to their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions. Let us take our actions very, very serious. Not heavy, but serious. Again, pointing to the rain as it is fully raining in various degrees of density. Could be the loud crescendo we heard before or it could be a soft drizzle. But there is never anything tentative about it. Even if your zazen is just like fog. There somebody said, even if you walk through the fog, you sit in the fog, your robe will be drenched and you will be thoroughly wetted. So no judgment is necessary. Ah, that was a terrible round of Zazen. But the one before, ah, that was great. I see the picture here of Maureen who would throw people out coming into Doksan to her and telling her, oh, my Zazen was so great. Get out of here! Judgments. And principles and all of that. We might as well be the tree in, the, in those four walls of the character that Yamakawa Roshi talked about. I wonder, I will look up if there's a character that has the enclosure and the sign for human inside. Yeah, what does it mean? Prison, yeah. Prison. Prisoner. Prisoner, yeah. We should have that right here on our foreheads, especially if we think about it. Prisoner. Prisoner of our own chains. Now let me tell you this quick story here from, there was this Japanese family who lived in Massachusetts. And they were very devoted to Zen Buddhism, but also very devoted to being macrobiotic. You know macrobiotic? Yeah. Michio Kushi and his family actually lived in, in Boston. And they developed this system. It, it was interesting because you, you spend a lot of time cooking. <laughs> I think it didn't taste particularly good. 
It had to be local and all of that. It was very elaborate. And one of the stunning things is that you could smoke. Yeah? <laughs> in, in fact, Mr. Cushy's daughter, one of them, she ended up dying from lung cancer because she smoked so much. It's very bad advertisement. But this family wanted to sponsor a Zen temple in Massachusetts. And so at that time, they reached out to uh, Sasaki Joshu Roshi. And he happened to have a retreat at Spencer in the monastery. It's a Christian Trappist monastery, Spen Spencer Abbey. And so he came to Boston, and uh, uh, Shuko-sans and my good friends were there. Uh, and there was a long discussion about it. Yeah, we should start with a session. Let's do a session first, and then we'll, when the, if that goes well, then we open a temple. We'll build you a temple, and, and then we have a Zen center here. And uh, that will be great. And everything was gone through in minutest detail, and Joshu Roshi was just sitting there very quiet. And in the end, everybody turned to him and said, Roshi, okay? And he said, oh, okay. One, one thing I must have. Final meal, we have to serve cheesecake. <laughs> now, of course, cheesecake is completely forbidden. The deal was off. <laughs> But this illustrates the function of <laughs> attachment. It also illustrates the function of a Zen teacher. And especially when you speak with Japanese uh, Roshis, everybody had their love-hate relationship with their teacher. Because as we also heard, the story about the company owner not wanting to inflict something on his son for the same reasons. That is something that is quite common. It's sometimes even with our parents, you know, we love them, but there's other things that are, or, or, or even married couples, you know. Married couples at times, they asked this couple, they were married for, se for 70 years. I don't know how this is possible. If they ever had <laughs> thought of, if they ever had thought of divorce, and both instantly said, no, never, not even once. Murder, however. <laughs> many, many times. So this is the kind of relationship that we at times have with our Zen masters. And, and This is the richness of it, you know? It, this is the richness. It has to be including all of it. Even Yamakawa Roshi talked about his teacher. Uh, I mean, his ma main teacher one was Itsugai Roshi, who was really, really, really difficult. Most of the people didn't last more than a couple of days of being his attendant, his inji, his sanno. Uh, and Yamakawa Roshi lasted for three years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
So the functioning of the Zen teacher is to make you at times hate them. Because as Roshi said yesterday, that what upsets us, that what challenges us, is not what we have to avoid, but we have to seek it by all means because these are the closest openings for us to slip through the gateless gate. The opportunities. Who would have thought that you will come here and one day be grateful for the terrible things that happened to you? The Diamond Sutra says it. Look it up after the session. So, the karmic conditions, Buddha's hand and the donkey's leg, three things. There's a last verse that brings all of them together here. Again, from Muryo Soju. He says, the Buddha's hands, the donkey's legs, the native place, not the Buddha, not the way, not Zen. No wonder the gateless gate is so steep and creates the deepest animosity among Zen students. In this remaining time of our formal session, seek the challenges that you can face. Welcome them. You have come to the place where the word animosity goes beyond the judgment of like and dislike. This, with our human form, with having encountered the Dharma, is rarely met with. Ho'on suru, requiting the Dharma debt of all past, present, and future generations. Let's do it. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.